Hey coaches, and welcome to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. For all the up-to-date information on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association, you can visit our website at www.or.nhsbca.org. Welcome to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. I'm Derek Duman, OBCA Secretary and Boys Basketball Coach at West Albany High School. Today, I get the pleasure of talking to Coach Kurt Gilsdorf, Assistant Women's Basketball Coach at Clackamas Community College. Coach, how are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well. Just kind of trying to do what everybody else is probably doing out there, figure out some things to do um, basketball-wise, around the house-wise, and, and, and when we can get out of here once in a while, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're all uh, learning a lot, uh, as much as we can, but also anxious to kind of get back out in the gym and, and do some stuff, so... Uh, Coach, I like to start our podcast by by having you share uh, just a little bit about your background, uh, what kind of got you involved in coaching, and, and how you ended up at, at Clackamas Community College. Sure, you know I was a, I was a typical seventies eighties kid that was you know playing all sports and doing all those things. I fell in love with sports at a young age. Uh, ended up um, being a, a decent high school player that had chances to play, but also had a little bit of a heart issue so I never played college athletics and, and I think that kept my fire going I went to Portland State for school and ended up a, a junior at Portland State a marketing major and with a little time on my hands I became a volunteer baseball coach at Gresham High School my old alma mater and I fell in love with coaching and so you know to get the, to the long story short I, I went to grad school at ASU did a little baseball at Westland did a little baseball at Gresham ended up getting my first job at Gresham spent uh, seven years there as the head coach on the girls' side, really had never planned to coach girls, just happened to need a job. And if any teachers are out there from the 90s know that the PERS was going pretty good and nobody was retired, so a job was an important thing. Uh, did did okay there. It was a volleyball school. Uh, ended up becoming very close friends with Brad Smith, uh, and everybody knows Brad Smith is the Hall of Fame coach at Oregon City. And when Carl Tinsley retired at uh, Oregon City, I uh, stepped into his role as kind of a co-head coach, assistant to Brad, uh, spent three years with Brad, which I think was a Ph.D. in coaching. Uh, anytime that you can find a mentor coach that you can bounce ideas off of is awesome, but I had the best of both worlds. I had that, and I got to be right next to, side-by-side for three years, probably the best high school coach in Oregon history uh, in Brad Smith. And so from there, uh, he retired after three years. I took over as the head coach and had some really good people working with me there for 15 years. Um, kind of came to the point where it was a time probably to move on for me. You know, we as high school coaches can always kind of feel those things coming on. And so I was able to end up at Clackamas Community College working for another great, great guy, Jim Martineau. And that's kind of kind of my basketball journey. A lot of good players along the road, uh, you know, won some state championships at Oregon City and all those kind of things. Uh, but, but ultimately, as I get older, the best thing about this game is, is the growing and, and helping kids achieve their dreams. And, and we as coaches, I think, start out wanting to achieve our dreams and then later on realize that it's all about the kids achieving their dreams. No, absolutely. I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. We all kind of come into it with this fire and passion that we're going to be the next great coach. But I think the sooner we realize it's about the kids and their dreams, the better off we're, we're going to be. Coach, I want to talk about, um, <clears throat> before I get into some, some of the other questions, specifically about recruiting, which I want to talk about a little bit today, uh, you kind of, kind of talked about it, aggression, uh, it was kind of quote-unquote volleyball school. Uh, and I think that's, 
something that, that we found, um, especially nowadays with kind of single sport athletes, um, and especially on the, on the women's side, I think it, it's, it's a lot more popular. Um, can, can you talk about that and your experience as far as, you know, basketball schools versus volleyball schools and kind of your thoughts on, on single sport athletes? Yeah, you know, the, all the research shows that you should be a multi-sport kid, and, and then you look at the guys in the NFL, I know that's comparing guys to girls, but they all of them play different sports. I think, I think unfortunately, and again, this is just my opinion, that, that the single-sport kid is probably losing out on some valuable experiences, and that the bang for the buck at the end of the journey isn't always probably what they might have expected. But that being said, um, it is what it is. Um, you know, kids are specializing at a young age, and, you know, and as far as a, as a coach out there, you've got to kind of look at some of these things coming into it because it, it's, it's harder now, I think. If I was a young coach taking a job at age 25 or 26 or whatever it might be, it's, it's hard because you're fighting a lot more things than you had to fight in the old days. I mean, you, you, the single sport things, some probably more fundraising depending on the district you're in, um, trying to share gym space with – Maybe you're, you're at a school that has a, a volleyball program and you're trying to share gym space with them. And well, there's all kinds of things today that I think are challenges in front of our young coaches. And unfortunately, you know, I've seen a lot of turnover as I go out recruiting. I'm, I'm seeing faces I've never seen before at places and, and quite a bit of turnover. And, you know, my daughter's still in high school, so I see a lot of Three Rivers League games. And there's a lot of new faces out there. And, and so it, it's a tough situation. I, I would always encourage kids, and I've had these conversations with some of the kids at Oregon City all the time, it's, you know, don't specialize, don't specialize, and yet you see it over and over. And I think it's that combination of maybe parents chasing things, kids not seeing things. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a good answer for you on that one other than, than we as high school coaches have to stick together and, and try to encourage all of our kids to do multiple things. Otherwise... Um, it becomes a situation where you 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 you're, you're not really doing what's right for the kid because I do think that, that physically and mentally it's it's good to have different things going on in your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did did you have any success uh, recruiting, I guess, girls from other sports, or do you have any advice for for coaches uh, that are maybe trying to get some some football players or volleyball players or track athletes to join the, the basketball team? Do you have any? selling points that you can share with us? Well, you know, I, I think Gresham was probably a better example because I was at Oregon City, you know, we were kind of the, you know, a quote-unquote big deal there at that school at that point. So we, we did have a lot of kids growing up wanting to play that. And I think the place to start for me is, is youth basketball. I think you have to start getting them there. Um, you know, they, I, I look at uh, some of my, my buddies that are out there still doing high school, and the ones that have the big numbers are have typically got a pretty solid youth program where they're starting down there in the fourth and fifth grade, getting kids playing, um, trying to keep it. And, and again, that's a, that's a tough one because now you start getting involved in there, and that's such a time commitment. Uh, and then you've got parents that, you know, well, my kid on the A team or the B team, and there's a whole can of worms there. But I, I do think that you've got to attack it at the lower levels trying to get kids going. I mean, when I was at Gresham, I can remember walking the hallways trying to get kids. Hey, there's a tall kid in, in my buddy's math class. i got to go see if I can talk to that girl and see if she can play hoops. Or, You know, there's always those stories, but I think the most effective way is to get down in the youth program, get them coming to your camps, get them buying in at a young age so that you've got numbers, because there's always going to be attrition. And I think more and more there's there's attrition at a higher level than there's ever been. I don't think that 
that kids or necessarily or even parents want to be a B team player anymore. I think the value that I see in being a B team player, you know, in a sixth, seventh, eighth grade is, you know, you're, you're exercising, you're being healthy, you're learning how to be a great teammate, you're learning our system. At least when I was at Oregon City, you're learning our system. So maybe you hit a growth spurt, maybe your skills improve. Um, you don't see that a ton anymore. Kids, you know, either go, they, there's a lot of club basketball, and then you have a lot of kids that just decide, you know what, I'm not on the A team, I'm going to move on. And I think that's unfortunate, too, because there's a whole lot of value in in sports beyond I'm playing for a scholarship, which I think you see a lot uh, today. No, I, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I'm uh, going to switch gears to kind of, uh, you know, your role as a, as a, as a college basketball coach and, and specifically with recruiting. What are some things that high school coaches can do uh, to better prepare kids to play at the college level? Well, the, the, the first thing is I think that I see a lot of, and this is kind of the mental side, kind of the off-the-court stuff, is that I don't think kids, and, and I know when I was at Oregon City, we had a lot of kids that went on to college. So very quickly I got acclimated to talking to college coaches, reaching out to the right levels, sending out math emails, sending out film, because, you know, part of the expectation in that program was that, that, that we had parents that, that wanted their kids to play and the kids that wanted to play, that were good players, that, that could play at the next level. I, I think the thing that kids need to know is about that process, uh, and they really don't know. There's a lot of kids that really have no clue. The first time you talk to them, it's, it's, it's you know, college, oh, okay, you know, you, you, you like my game, you know, what, what's that mean, and, and how does this work, and, and those kind of things. And for me, it's a pretty simple process. I, you know, I'm out of the game, you know, you might like a kid, and I'll, if we really like a kid, I think for me, I try to get in pretty quickly because there is a situation, I think, that two-year versus four-year, you might have some kids that are very academic that don't necessarily look at a two-year in the right light, and there's other kids that look at a two-year and go, that's perfect for me. I don't know what I want to study. So there's always that piece, and I try to, to try to identify those kids early on about what's going to be a good fit for them. Um, but I think as high school coaches, number one, kind of educate them to the process of, you know, coaches reaching out to you. More and more of it is, is direct coach to player. But I think coaches can reach out. I know I used to have email lists of each conference that I kind of had built into my, to my Gmail and that I could, you know, email a kid who I thought maybe was a West Coast Conference kid or even a kid I thought was a junior college kid. So I would email out highlights to the NWAC coaches. And, and it's kind of like spaghetti on the wall theory there that, that you're going to get somebody to nibble a little bit and then, you know, talking to your kids about being aggressive. Because I think the other thing that the kids have to realize, they can reach out to a coach at any point, at any level. They can call them up and, you know, you could call up Kelly Graves tomorrow and say, Coach, I'm a player at, at West Albany and, and I want to have information about your program. Now, he can't call you. Now, there's certain rules they can't do and all that stuff as part in certain times of year, but – I think kids can can understand that they can be a huge part of the recruiting process to reach out, to figure it out, and then on 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 that side of it, you know, I I always encourage the kids that I had in, in high school, is um, that man you you got to find the right fit and you got to find a coach that believes in you because ultimately um, you you you're going to have a tough moment whether that's a kid that's gone to a D1 school and it's a really tough season, you're, you're playing with 20, 21-year-olds who are really, really good, and you're getting your butt kicked every day. Uh, you had a coach that really was like, oh, yeah, I'll take you, or you kind of, you know, I, I don't know if that always goes as well. But but I tell kids, you know, when I'm recruiting, I mean, I, I, I'm recruiting you for a reason. I believe in you. And when things get tough, I'm going to be here for you, whether that's academically uh, to get you to the right spots, 
we're basketball-wise getting them the right spots. And as far as the, the skills go, you know, obviously we're out recruiting certain things. I, I For us at the two-year level, I can't be as picky. I can't be like I'm only going to take a 6'4 post or I'm only going to take a point guard that's 5'10 and above. I've got to be like kind of trying to figure out where a kid can fit, where a kid that likes the idea of a two-year commitment, uh, or maybe a kid that's on the way to somewhere higher and, and wants to spend one year and move on. So it's a little bit more fluid for me. And so I can't be as, as picky, you know, as far as, uh, uh, let's say you're a Tara Vandeveer and you, you love having point guards that are 5'11". Well, she can be pretty picky. <laughs> I, I might have a, a really dynamite 5'4 kid one year and then and then a 5'10 kid the next and a 5'7 kid the next year. So as far as that goes, um, you know, my recruiting can be can vary from player to player, and and as far as the the skills go, we you know obviously we, we want our players to be as skilled as they can be. But again, it's it's one of those ones that some of those kids they they may be too good and jump to the next level. And I think the, the last thing for for as we wrap up this question is high school coaches. I think you need to be really really honest with your players about where you see them. And if you're not sure where you see them, reach out to somebody that, that can watch a little film for you to give them an honest opinion. Because the worst thing I think we can do is is have a kid go to the wrong level uh, or go to a place that they, they're just kind of as a second or third option and it ends up not going well. Uh, there's a reason why there's 600 transfers at the Division One level. Uh, you, there's a reason why there's, you know, a mold, thousands of transfers at the other levels. Is that we don't we don't and maybe it's the players, coaches, and parents don't make that right choice to find the very best fit. And that's the most important thing, I think, for kids coming out of high school that want to play college. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Coach. Um, you talked a little about, you know, Clackamas uh, Community College is, is a two-year school. Um, and, and you spoke on a little bit about the type of kids that you can recruit. But can you kind of talk on some of the differences uh, for recruiting process to a two-year school uh, in the NWAC like Clackamas versus a four-year school, even like a Linfield or a Lewis and Clark type of type of place? Yeah, most of the difference, like if we're going for a kid and it's it's, it's us versus a, a Linfield or whatever, or us versus a George Fox, they're, they're a really good program, D3. You know, a lot of it is, is an academic thing there uh, where a kid might be a better fit for us for a two-year because um, clearly I, I think Clackamas does a terrific job. I think they were ranked the number one educational junior college in the state. Um, but to compare that to a four-year George Fox, you know, it's a different educational situation. Um, so I think that that's a big difference there is the education uh, as far as um, the perception of it. And there, there, it may be a lot closer than people think, but I do think there's a perception that your, your two years a little bit I don't want to say easier, but you're not going to have some of the challenges you might face if you go to that Division III uh, level. And I think there's also a certain amount of kids that, that just look at that commitment. And you're looking at a generation of kids, the millennials, the Generation Zs now, that that I, I do think we have a little bit of an advantage because I don't know, you know, to me, a four-year commitment, if I was 18 years old right now and I was asked for a four-year commitment, I don't know if I could, could do that. But I know that if I – you know, we have a, uh, on the men's side a, a kid named Robert Ford who came out of Jefferson who has been a pleasure to watch for two years, and he's a legit D1 kid. And he's got his pick of a bunch of places, but the two-year fit was perfect for him, just absolutely perfect. So for what's perfect for one guy or for one young lady may not be perfect for someone else. So, again, it's, it's those little differences, uh, what fits for him academically, what, what fits for him basketball-wise, you know, I feel like that our 
our school is very comparable to the high-level D3s in our area, and we, could, we would be very competitive in that uh, Northwest Conference. So we've got good players. I think sometimes kids don't realize how good junior college basketball is uh, in, in the Northwest. Um, and I think Portland is, is full of kids that, that could play that level and really grow their game and, and grow their academics and then jump to the next level. Um, but a lot of it, it, it's just kind of different for each kid, how they look at it. But I, I'm a big believer in the junior college. I was a junior college guy, uh, you know, went to play and then wasn't able to play. Um, uh, and, and so I, I just think that um, it, it's a great spot for the right kid. And for another kid, you know, it goes back to that fit that, that they may not feel like it's the perfect fit for them. Absolutely. And in, in the in the NWAC, I know especially if we're you know specifically Division three schools, there, there's only specific times of the year that they can work with kids, right? Uh, and in yeah, the NWAC, yeah. I think the rules are a little a little more uh, laxed, or lax is probably not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. You guys can work with your kids. Yeah, a little there, bit, just, right? there just aren't any rules really. I mean, yeah. you can talk to a kid pretty much any time. Um, and and the nice part for us is you know we start when school starts. You know. Um, <laughs> And and so when I recruit a kid, I tell them, you know, when you come to Clackamas and play for us, it's not going to be a job yet. So you're an aspiring Division One kid or Division Two kid. When you get there, it's going to be 6 a.m. weights, it's classes, it's a 10 a.m. study table, and at 12 o'clock you might practice till 10. I mean, you're, you're a full-time athlete. And not a lot of kids, you, know, you start to talk to them and get to know them. For, for, for some of them, the commitment we have, which is, you know, we start in end of September, and it's still a long season. And you know that, Coach, even as a high school yeah. guy, the season is long. Yeah. So, you know, we start out two hours, five days a week. We get weekends off. I mean, it's a it's a great fit for the right kid. They still are getting better. I think I have tried to be really efficient with my coaching because in high school I had the kids essentially for eight years, from fifth grade on up. And by the time I got them, you know, at the freshman year, I knew their strengths, their weaknesses, how we could run them. Here, i, I got to get to know you in 30 days. Like your basketball, I've I've met you, I've I've got you to the school, we've recruited you, and all those things. But but at the JC, I mean, we got 30 days and we got to play a game, you know, it, it, maybe 35, something like that. And right. so you, yeah, that process, it, it's made me a better coach. I've, I've become much more efficient with what we do in practice, and you know, understanding the college athlete versus the high school athletes, another kind of a uh, a change there as far as how hard we can go, how many days a week we can go that hard. Because you, you've got 19, 20-year-old bodies versus a 15, 16-year-old kid that you can have run through a wall for a, a month straight kind of thing. So, Yeah, no, that's absolutely. What um, what does your guys' skill development look like? Because, you, you know, you mentioned you have a kid from fourth grade all the way to uh, their senior year at, at the kind of the high school level. Uh, you're having to be more efficient uh, what what does that look like? What do your off season workouts look like? I mean, how do you get kids ready maybe for that next level in that short two year span? Well, the first thing we tell them when we come in is, is if your dreams are, are beyond you know which we want. I I want to recruit kids that want to go four year. I don't want to necessarily have a bunch of kids that just want to play two years and be done because that means I'm probably not recruiting good enough players. So the first thing is, you know, I want kids that are aspiring to the next level, and then I try to help them get there. And that's part of the recruiting pitch, too, is, is when I was in high school, I was big into player development. So that's the next thing is, hey, we want to develop you. And what it looks like for us is, you know, I want our guards to be able to obviously shoot the ball, and, and we're going to do some specific things 
based on what they do. I'm going to kind of analyze what they do, but I, I'm, a, I'm a big either hop step or a one-two left-right for my right-handed shooters. So we're going to teach those things. We're going to teach them the finishing stuff, you know, some inside hand stuff, some fakes. Some, and I'm big into, you know, dribble drive, obviously. Um, and, and, but the two-foot finishes, all the different things you can do off two feet. And then we're going to teach our bigs how to finish quickly and power up and, and, and go through all the post moves. So just, I, I would assume for most guys are doing the same kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just got to do it in a way that, that, that I'm super efficient with it. You know, whether that's, that's more reps, you know, small groups of two or three. I'm a, I'm a big repetition guy. I, I think anything that has the line of five or more people is probably not a good drill that I would run. Uh, my shooting drills, I want to get 20 minutes or 20 shots per minute up. In every shooting drill that we do, we're going to shoot 100 threes for our guards every day, sometimes more. Uh, my trailer bigs are going to shoot 100 threes from the slot, the top, and the other slot every single day. So we're going to take our bigs and make them great shooters, we hope, obviously. Um, <laughs> that's a big hope because sometimes you don't always have great shooters. Um, you, you try to recruit the best shooters you can. But we're going to give them inside out. We're going to try to give as much of the full package as we can so that the next level that they're ready for whatever role they get thrown into. Obviously, you know, guards pretty much stay guards, but I've found that, that, that our guards that can post up are 10 times more effective and our bigs that can step out and shoot threes are 10 times more effective. So, you know, my philosophy is to train the whole player and not pigeonhole them into a position. I think that's a recruiting question I get a lot as well. You know, in high school, they just played on the block. Where are they going to play? And I always tell them, well, if I need you on the block, I'm going to put you on the block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, I'm also going to teach you in practice to be able to stretch out and, and do different things. And if you can show me you can do that, we'll, we'll put you in a place to help us win because I think everybody out there listening as a coach knows this is true. Um, coaches are pretty simple creatures. We want to win games. And we're going to put the players in positions to help us win games, and we're not going to coach to lose a game ever. And so, you know, that, that's part of what we teach when we talk to them about in the recruiting process is we're going to make you the whole player inside and out, and we're going to do it in a way that, that, that is the most efficient possible because my time window is much smaller than a kid that I've had at camp in fifth grade and the kid that I go to their practices. And I had daughters go through my high school, so I was down at the youth uh, stuff all the time for the last 15 years So uh, when I was in high school. So anyway, that's just kind of my philosophy there, kind of teach them to be the whole player is, is kind of what I look at. That's, yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, when they get to the college level, and I think there's different philosophies on this, but, you know, you talked about shooting, and, and obviously, um, especially with, with where the game's going nowadays, uh, shooting the ball is really important. Um, do you correct form at the college level? Because, um, you know, to, to change someone's form takes a little bit of time and a lot, a lot of repetition. Um, or do you think that should be left to kind of the youth and high school coaches? You know what? I do. I, don't, I think it's never too late. Just to help a kid be a better shooter. Um, most of the, the, the major corrections that I start with are the feet. Um, I see a lot of bad footwork. Um, I'm not a permanent pivot guy, but I'm telling you, as a right-handed player, for the best balance you should be, you should have a left foot pivot on a catch if you're going to go up, you know, left, right. I've, uh, in recent years, I've, I've done a lot of work with the hop step, and some kids prefer that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach – those two things and we'll do that on day one in a couple of our shooting drills where it's either a one two into your shot when we always talk about balls in the air feet in the air so if i'm getting the pass from a wing to a top um ball is in the air feet are in the air left right shot or 
balls in the air, feet in the air, two foot hop. And that's um, something I got from Doc Shepler down there in, at Pinewood High School. So, coaches, if you watch Pinewood High School, girls basketball, oh, my gosh, Doc is he's a savant when it comes to the teaching the shooting game. And I spent a few weekends with him down there in, in California. And uh, he's a big hop shooter. I'm a, I'm a one-two or a hop, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to have my right-handed players typically go right, left, unless it's an inside pivot coming off a screen, and we don't run a ton of that stuff. So for us, balls in the air, feet in the air, and that's where I'll start. Um, we'll typically then at that point utilize film, whether that's just on our phone or uh, some sort of filming, uh, where we'll, we'll take a look at where their elbow's at, where their hands are at, you know, that kind of stuff, and try to help them you know, positioning on the ball. And you're, you're right, it, it's tough to change. It takes them, but we do try to, to really start with the feet because the feet are something that I can change immediately in practice. And I, like on day one, I can change your feet. Now, it might take 100 days to change how your your elbow is because you've done it since the fourth grade or whatever. And, and I do think shots are a little bit unique. Um, we all have a little bit different way we get to the end. But we're going to, we are going to, we are going to, to try to change that the best we can without – I'm not going to take a kid and I would say probably radically 180 what they do unless it's so bad, um, but try to help them become maybe the best bad form shooter they can be right. by creating great feet, great balance, because I think it all starts with great feet and great balance. Um, you, you don't have a chance when you're not on balance. You just don't. So, you know, that's kind of how I approach it. But I guess to answer the question, I, I do try to fix their form the best I can um, and, and it wouldn't be anything where I tell a kid, hey, you're shooting at terrible, we got to fix that. It's more of a, a subtle approach, starting with their feet and working our way up. Yeah, well, that, that's great uh, intel, too, because I think as, as high school coaches, even, you know, you, you get kids that come in and you want to spend a lot of time, and <clears throat> a lot of times we focus on, oh, their elbow's out or their thumb in it or the ball's on the palm or, you know, all of those other things. But like you're saying, I mean, kind of the easiest thing to fix um, is, is the footwork. And, and if they've got a good base and, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what it looks like after that, um, they've got a chance to, to shoot the ball in. So I appreciate that. I think it's a quick, easy fix for a lot of us that can, can help our kids shoot the ball better. Yep, for sure. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll return with more from Coach Gilsdorf right after this on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Want more from the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast? Visit our website at anchor.fm slash OBCA or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Derek Duman here with Clackamas Community College Women's Basketball Assistant Coach Kurt Gilsdorf. Uh, Coach, we talked about recruiting uh, some shooting there in that first segment, uh, but I'm going to switch lanes on you here a little bit uh, and talk about defense, which I know is, is one of your passions um, and something that you've been talking a lot about at clinics and, and via social media and things of that nature, um, and and uh, specifically pressure defense. So can you kind of start with your kind of overall philosophy and how you sell your kids on being a full-court pressure defensive team? Well, the, the the belief I had, you know, in high school, because again, I was able to implement a system from from the ground up, and, and obviously working with Brad, we had started that process long before I got there. Um, I'm a big believer that, that that pressure 
you know, can make diamonds and it can make you wilt too. And and so we always believe that, that by pressuring the opponent, we were going to make them play at a pace that they just weren't comfortable in. That's first and foremost, that, that we were used to playing that way every day in practice and the other guys weren't. And so eventually we would either wear you out, you would you would take poor shots, you know, the shots that weren't going in the first quarter, or I might be, I should say uh, going in the first quarter, weren't going in in the third and fourth quarter, your legs go. Because, again, we're practicing at that pace every day. So that pressure was kind of that, that belief that we're going to wear you out and we're going to bring, bring fatigue into the game. Patino always said, you know, fatigue makes a coward out of all of us. <laughs> so we were always trying to go there first and foremost. Uh, and as far as, you know, the, the belief in it, I just, on the girls' side especially, I, I think it's, it's just something that, that we were able to impose our will dictate tempo every single time out or at least we tried anyway there were times when that didn't always happen but for the most part pressure puts the game where you want it to be the tempo is your way rather than the other team imposing their will so just on a two-pronged approach there you know trying to to to, to create more possessions with the pressure and then instilling your will that tempo on the other opponents was was kind of the first piece of, of why i love full court pressure so much no that's good stuff um, can you talk about? I know you, you say uh, there's like a you have a numbering system, if I if I remember yeah. correctly, uh, for how you kind of get into your pressure. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, Brad had had this system in, and I, I can remember sitting and having lunch with Brad Smith, and, and we were early on in our career working together, and and I said, you know, I, I, no matter how many years you might be gone, I still will run this number system because it's such a great way to teach the game. And what we did is the court is broken into to, to four zones. Um, the full court all the way up pressure for us was a four zone. Uh, the next zone back at the three-quarter court pressure would be a three zone, then a two zone was half court, and a one zone was top of the key uh, at the other end. And then the second part of our number system is how many players would be in that zone. So if we were man-to-man, uh, we would have one player up in the four zone, so for us that would be a 14. If we were in a 2-2-1, we would be in a 24, so two players up in the four zone. If we were in a 34, we would have three players in the four zone. And if you got to 44, which we did run in my first few years because we had two posts, that would be kind of your diamond press where we might even have four players up in the four zone. But the zones were great because it gave the players, the, the defensive group that was out there, the pickup point. And I think it's huge. You have to know where you're picking up and those kind of things. Uh, and so that number system was just really good to us because what it would allow us to do was, and this is the beauty of that system is switching from one press to another very quickly. Um, the kids start learning those numbers at a young age. They come in and they're able to jump from a 34 press to a 33 press to a 32 press. We were able to, to get multiple traps because when I was a young coach, I mean, when I pressed full court, it was usually because we were behind. And, you know, we were down six and we had to press or whatever. And then I started pressing a little bit more as I got into my career a little bit and I really liked it. And then I get to Brad Smith and I watch what I would call pressing as a way of life. I mean, we're going to press and press and press some more. And our adjustments might be, as the team might be a little bit better, we might have to go a little bit softer press. But we were going to press you no matter what. And so the ability for a simple system, and some coaches use colors, some coaches use numbers, but I think there's a key point in that is that, that get a vocabulary that that's very easy for your players to understand. For us, it was the number system. For me, it was um, 
for other coaches, I know talking to somebody, they, they run different color presses, and it's simple for their players. Um, but that ability to transition between one press and another I thought was just awesome, and, and I've, I've continued to use that um, in all my career since that time at the, the very first couple of years at Oregon City with Brad. That's great. Coach, can you talk about, <clears throat> I think, you know, as coaches, we kind of assume sometimes that, that players understand what we, what we say when we're like, hey, uh, I want you to go trap the ball. Uh, but I think trapping is, is something that, that can be taught probably better uh, than we teach it now. Are there any specific um, coaching points you have when you're teaching kids how to double team or trap the ball? Yeah, you know, we, we'll do some trap drills where we'll just simply introduce it. And then, like I said, back at a young age, we've, we've you know, rolled the ball to the corner and the, the players go. But we're trying to get, you know, 90 degrees with our feet and our bodies, with our teammates. We want to have high hands, mirror the ball. We talk about two things in that trap. We want to talk about no vision. We don't want to give the players vision out of the trap. And we want to, we talk about no splits. Can't let them split us. And then we're never going to foul. So it's kind of the big three in every trap. You know, no vision. If they're going to throw the ball out of there, it's going to be backwards uh, to the to the inbounder, and that's the one we try to steal a bunch. You know, we're not going to let them split us. We're going to, we're going to be locked in with our feet. You know, trying to to form that 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 right angle with the two bodies, with our hands mirroring the ball, trying to get tips. And and then we're not going to foul because the worst thing you can do, 85 feet from the rim, you've got a great trap. Uh, some kid reaches and fouls and, and, and negates all that hard work that you put in. Yeah. How much of practice do you spend uh, working on trapping or working on full court pressure? I mean, what does that, what does that look like? Well, in high school, I, I spent a whole ton of time. I will tell you that, that part of a big chunk of every practice in high school was spent in transition and working our offensive and defensive transition with the drill that we used to call it. It's more of a game than it is a drill. We call this drill uh, running groups, and it was a three-team transition. And in that 45 minutes to sometimes an hour, um, we were running our offensive transition against a, a numbered situation, kind of a constraint there, a five-on-three, a five-on-two, and then that same team would come back against pressure. And for us, if it was one thing in high school that probably defined us, as a program, um, it was probably that transition time when we were working on our pressure offense and our pressure defense. And I use those terms because I think as coaches, if, if you're going to press and get up into people, you probably are going to be pretty aggressive on offense too. I don't think that you can be, you know, 10 passes, Hoosiers, and then try to go down the other way and, and trap the crap out of people. I don't know if that's <laughs> a, a fit. So I always thought that pressure offense and pressure defense described us and we were going to spend 45 minutes to an hour every day working on our transition O and our transition D. And our transition D for us, we you know, we pressed on misses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, there's there's a huge advantage to having kids from a young age. Um, I'm, you know, at the college level now, we press sometimes on misses. But most of the time we're in what I would call that middle range of pressing. We're kind of in that pressing situationally, you know, press off a free throw. Uh, press to create tempo. Press when your offense isn't going well. We still press, but it's not like in high school where I was going to press from the minute of the tip. We, you know, we would actually press on the tip um, to the to, to the 29 minute mark, and then the last three minutes, whatever it took to win the game. You know, I was going to 
going to stand pressure. And again, I, I think there's, there's times probably if you watch where, you know, maybe we're in control of the game, we're ahead by a lot, or we're playing a really good team or whatever, but we were, we were going to press from the get go and, and that we were going to spend at least an hour of, of two hours and 45 minutes uh, that we practiced in high school uh, on pressure defense and pressure offense. Fantastic. Um, can you talk about pressing on a miss a little bit? I think it's something that um, <clears throat> coaches might like to do more, uh, but it's not something that I think you see a lot of. Uh, what are kind of some of your key coaching points for pressing off of a miss? Well, first thing is you got to practice it because it, <laughs> it's hard. Um, you know, for the most part, even in college, we've, we've sent at least three of the glass, sometimes four, to the paint. So we're already there. We're already crashing the boards. Um, you, you have to make a couple adjustments in our conference. There's a couple teams. Umqua uh, pushes transition really well, so you have to kind of tweak your transition D. But for the most part, we're pretty aggressive on the offensive boards. So in turn, we're, we're already in the area. Uh, the big thing there is you must be very much an anticipator of what happens next, which I mean by that is you clearly see that the other team has got the rebound. So now immediately you're getting into your press spots. And so for us, you know, you designate your top kid. Sometimes your top kid can't get there, and that's why we try to be as interchangeable as possible. But typically the front of our press, let's say we're in a one-two-two, that's one of the kids we already had crashing the boards anyway. And so if we're in the next two lines, those guys are pretty interchangeable. Uh, it's one of those ones, if you practice it, I think it's more doable than coaches think because you're, you're exactly right when coaches say that, boy, it's tough. How am I going to press on a mess? And I, I think you can't, and I think – there's a lot of teams out there that they corral their rebound, they get the ball to the point guard, and then they walk it down the floor. And those are teams that, that, that we will continue to press now on misses. Mm -hmm. uh, the teams that push it up as much, because I haven't had these kids for four or five years, it's a little harder for us to, to naturally flow to those spots. Because, you know, on a roster of 12 kids, I might have three of those kids that pressed in high school all the time. I might have three of them that, that didn't press at all. And then six of them that, that pressed a little bit, but mostly played zone. So you know, what I mean, I mean you, you, you're, you've got to kind of adjust. But if, if, if I'm in high school and I'm pressing as a way of life, um, we almost exclusively pressed on misses back into like a half court, three quarter court uh, pickup point, um, and and we're able to get a lot of success out of that just because I think teams are a little discombobulated when they see press off of a miss. They aren't in their press break, so to say, although most teams when I was coaching are going to say they knew the press was coming, so right. everything they did was, was to get ready for that. But I still think it takes time. That was something that every team had to prepare for when they played us, and that takes away time from other things. It helps you, you know, part of your game plan. you got you got to spend half an hour probably on press break, getting ready to play a team that's going to press you. So I think those are things to think about when you're deciding, okay, I'm going to be a press coach. Okay, then you have to invest the time. If you want to be a selective press coach, you probably don't have to, to to put as much time into it. But at the same time, you may not be as good at it. So there's there's trade-offs in everything. And, and when I was talking the other day on my clinic, I talked about the concept of the jelly bean jar. You know, it, it only gets so full. And if you add more things to that jelly bean jar, it's going to overflow unless you're taking stuff out. So if you're you're adding stuff, you know, for us, press was just a way of life in high school. So we were doing it for an hour every day. What is that sacrifice? Well, maybe we weren't as great in our in our half court offense as maybe we would be, but we felt like the pressure made up for it. You know, those kind of things. There's always trade offs in everything we do, philosophy wise. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
I like that uh, visual of the jelly bean jar. Like that's a good, that's a good visual. Um, can you talk about, so you said, let's say you send four, four kids to the offensive glass. They're already there to start the pressure. Do you, is the fifth person going to protect the hoop? Like how do you, how do you protect from an easy bucket in transition? Well, typically we're, we're going to, you know, that we call that you know, our back man and that, and that back man is, is going to be, um, first of all, they're going to get probably to the bottom of the, of the half court circle. And then from there, um, we're going to, we're going to flow back into our defensive stuff. And that kid probably is going to end up picking up. And that's where, again, you have to have those, we always talk about three sprint steps as the opponent gets the, the, the re. I think that's huge in your defensive transition. You shoot the ball, you miss, they get it. Okay. Right there at that point, you've got your back man, you've got kids that crash, but immediately on that catch, it's three sprint steps. And now you're peaking. We try to flood the ball side. Uh, to force force the teams to have to switch sides with it um, rather than allow the kick ahead. So that's what that safety man would do for us, first of all, is they would they would pick up any kick aheads, and then we would start flowing into matchups. And we, we'd really try to so make sure that our players realize that you may not have your man, per se, every single possession uh, in the way that we're going to crash the offensive boards. You may be where, you know, you're, you're, you're the matchup before the game, we wrote it up on the board is, is, you know, player A is going to guard player C on the other team. But in the game, because of the way we're crashing the boards and the way we're pressing maybe a little bit, you may end up with different players in front of you, and that's okay. Um, and part of our scouting report is we use very simple code words to kind of label players. You know, one player might be a Westbrook. They're a driver. Another player might be a shooter. we we'll call them a Curry. And so each of the players knows kind of who they have and what number is what kind of player, and that's been really – really good to us as far as uh, allowing a very simple scout and uh, in transition when you're when you are being aggressive there are going to be times when you're not matched up with the guy that the coach told you to guard before the game kind of thing but that's okay and we do switch a lot of screens anyway so we end up with with those kind of situations just in our half court stuff fantastic do you uh the game has, has gotten a lot more analytical uh probably since since you started um, yep. And being a pressure team, uh, both pressure offense, pressure defense, uh, but specifically defensively, is there anything that you chart or any goals that you set where you're like, hey, when we when we reach this goal, uh, we reach this goal, we're gonna we're gonna win. Is there, is there anything that you keep track of like that? Well, deflections is a big one, um, and I, I think that's one that that I would chart. You know, it's just Jim and I on the bench right now. So it's harder for me to get as much uh, charting as I'd like to do. I usually typically do that from film. But we're trying to get anywhere from 8 to 10 deflections per quarter. That's usually when we can tell we're really aggressive defensively, that we're getting tips on the ball, um, those kind of things. Uh, we, we we always wanted to chart the number. We, we never When we were pressing in Oregon City, we never wanted to give up lands. And sometimes, depending on the team, you know, again, that's what's kind of changed over the 10 years because I can remember, you know, 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago playing teams where they were hitting corner threes against the press early because, you know, if you kick it ahead and you beat the pressure, which happens sometimes against the good teams, um, you know, they're making a three in the corner. And I always thought, well, gosh, you know, it, it's it's um, it, they won't make those shots in the third and fourth quarter. Well, you know, analytically, you start looking at the way the three ball is, you, you look at that as a different mindset now. So, we're we're running kids off three point lines now, 
and 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 not that we're settling the institutes because we don't want to give any any points away, but it's just a different mindset. So yes, the analytics have definitely changed, and I think if I was in high school now, and I was pressing, I, I might probably be a little bit more um, man run and jump uh, press wise, so that I'm I feel like I'm at least matched fairly close. Um, to my guys, and I'm not losing people up the sideline uh, versus zone traps. So it'd be something that would be interesting, you know, going back to look at because I do think that when you look at the numbers, the three ball has become such a big piece to the game. And you know, a team can shoot 30% from threes and be more efficient than when they're you know shooting 40, 45% from two. So um, it's just one of those ones that 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 I think that that you have to look at your team and figure out what's best for them. And if you feel like you can you can cover teams and certain coverages, then, then that's the, the way to go. And I think the other part is, is you're constantly looking for ways to be better uh, at teaching uh, the game and teaching the transition and teaching your pressure. Absolutely. Thanks, Coach. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, when we return, Coach Gilsdorf will try to beat the shot clock here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Want to learn more about the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association and how we can support you? Check out our website at www.or.nhsbca.org. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. We're talking with Kurt Gilsdorf, Assistant Women's Basketball Coach at Clackamas Community College. Uh, Coach, for my next set of questions, uh, I'm going to put you up against the quote-unquote shot clock, um, which is something we don't currently have in high school basketball in the state of Oregon, but something you guys use quite frequently, obviously, at the college level. Um, so here's how it's going to work. I'm going to ask some rapid-fire questions that are going to be one- to two-word answers, uh, and we're going to see how many we can get in 35 seconds. Sound okay. like a plan? All right. Now, that's five, five more seconds than you're used to, right? So this is going to feel yeah, like an experience yeah. for you, what, probably. Shot clock. It, it's so fun. The two-for-ones, the, 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 the lead is never safe kind of idea. I, I think that the high school would, would uh, state of Oregon, hopefully they'll get there soon. Yeah. All righty. So I've got 35 seconds on the clock. You ready to go? We're ready. All right. Starting uh, now. You mentioned you were in favor of the shot clock. Should it be implemented at the freshman and JV levels also? Yes. Should it be implemented at all six classifications? Uh, Yes. I know that's a cost issue, but yes. If you're up three points with less than 10 seconds on the clock, do you foul? Yes. How big of a lead do you need before you pull off a press? 30. Uh, Do you think the high school three-point line should be moved back? No. How do you celebrate after a big win? Dinner. What's one word officials would use to describe you? Intense. Fantastic. That's it. 35 seconds. Good work, Coach. Thank you. That was nice. Looks like you've uh, been dealing with the shot clock before. I like that. that. It's such a better game. And and I, I do think that the women's game at the college level has the best rules. And I, and I mean is they've got 30-second shot clock. You reset the fouls after a quarter. I feel bad with the high school games I, I go to and I watch, and there's a very aggressive, two intense teams going at each other, and they, they're, they're just a little too aggressive early, and all of a sudden you're in the double bonus with six minutes to go in the first half. 
and, and nobody's having any fun. Um, so the reset, the advance the ball at the end, you know, we were number one in the country this year uh, at the JC level for sideline out-of-bounds points per possession, mm. um, and we were number five on baseline out-of-bounds uh, as far as points per possession at the junior college level versus 100 possessions. So um, it was it, it's a very much a special situations game at the end at the college level because you get a chance to draw stuff up. You know, I might have five out-of-bounds plays in our normal package, but I've got another ten that, that we just draw up out of timeouts. And it's it's kind of a fun little aspect of the game that, that I enjoy a bunch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you think uh, – I know it's it's gotten a lot of uh, attention uh, in in the States, like you're saying, at the college level for the women. Do, do you think that's going to end up joining the men's side or even the high school side? Or uh, I don't know if you've heard anything about it, but – no, I, I just I just wish we would get a little bit more uniformity at the college level. I, it's weird that we have different rules than our men's team play with. Um, and I think the big one to me is quarters and the reset of the fouls. Um, I, I just 10-minute quarters, reset the fouls, uh, four timeouts, advance the ball at the end. Those are, those are things that make the game great. I mean, I look around at the high school games, and there were gyms that used to be packed five and ten years ago, and now there's just, you know, 25, 30 people there, moms and dads, boyfriends and girlfriends. And and I think the high school game, you know, would, would be great to, to get a shot clock, to change some rules, to make the game a little bit more exciting for the, for the fans. And then, you know, you look at the participation numbers on the girls' side, there's less and less girls playing basketball now than, than, than ever, and some numbers are going up in other areas. And so – I think that's another way to make the game fun and, and start it at a young age where they hate shot clock. In Canada, you're a fifth grader. You're playing with a 24-second shot clock. So so think about that now. You're a 24-second shot clock in Canada, and you play four years of youth basketball, whether it's club or whatever the system they have up there. You're probably getting 5,000 more possessions than a kid in America who's going to play youth basketball with no shot clock and at some point somebody's going to hold the ball and somebody's going to run two minutes off the clock. And and so I, I think, you know, I, I go back to my, my philosophy of repetitions. I mean, if a kid in Canada in the fifth grade can play 24-second shot clock, we sure can in America. So that's just the way I look at it. No, absolutely. Um, I want to talk – you talked a little bit about the transfer, transfer portal earlier um, and just, just the number of transfers – uh, at the collegiate level, but I think it's something that we're we're seeing at, at the high school level quite a bit as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about about kind of the transfer culture and, and maybe do you have any ideas for how we could kind of kind of limit limit that culture? Yeah, you know, when I was at Oregon City, I think you probably would have had a hundred coaches complaining that I was getting all the transfers. Um, <laughs> But, 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 you know, I think then it was it was a situation where a parent and a kid looked at it like, okay, I want to improve my opportunity um, to go uh, to play somewhere. And, and you know, you, there's arguments both ways. Some of the times those things work out great. Some of the times they don't. I know as a high school coach that I, I didn't like the idea of transfers just because. And, again, I love those kids every bit as much as I did the others. But, but you know, you grow up in a community. You stick with your community. I think that the dilemma with it, and, it, and probably the, the source of it, is a lot of things that are so much outside the high school coach's control. You know, the club teams, the, the playing with a club kid from, you know, let's say you're in Albany and you got a kid that's going to Salem every weekend to play at the hoop, and they, they get a best buddy, and their best buddy plays at South Salem. I'm just saying that. I'm not trying to 
they didn't right. get stuff in. But I'm just no. I'm using that as an example. And next thing you know, you know, hey, coach, I'm, I'm going to so-and-so school because, you know, we're buddies. And, and those are things that are so much out of our control that I, I don't know if there's a good answer on that one. I, I would just say as, as a high school coach, you just do your best to love your kids and, and help them be good people, help them be good players. And if they move on from you, um, I, I, you can't take it personal because it probably was 90 other things and it wasn't you. And in today's culture, I think that, that do the very best job you can. Love your kids. Help them be better players. Um, and if you build a program that has those things as a foundation, more times than not, you'll probably have kids wanting to be a part of it rather than going the other way. Um, because I know that, that in my experience at the college level, there's a lot of really tough coaches here in our conference that are you have to be ready for every night when you play. Um, but the people that do the best job there at the high school are just kids, the coaches that have the kids first and, and are really about developing their players as people as well as players. And so, you know, I want to have a culture. I want a kid that plays for me at Clackamas to, to, to like, recommend it to the next kid. And same thing if I was a high school guy. I'd want a kid to say, Kurt was tough on me, but you know what? I learned a lot, and he cared about me, and he helped me get where I wanted to get to. And it had high expectations and, and held me accountable. And if a kid doesn't like the way you're doing it, you know, I, I would tell you most of the time the transfers to me are from, from sources outside of your of your control, you know, whether that's a parent sitting with another parent in the stands or – the buddy that's playing with another buddy and they decide to do it. Um, you know, I don't think there's a great answer on it. I don't know if the USA can do things that, that do it. But ultimately, do the best you can as a coach. Uh, if someone wants to leave what you're doing, I, 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 it's just more power to them. Go for it. But, I, I, you know, I feel like you're doing whatever you can to help the kids that you got in front of you. And, you're, and, and as, as old Norman Dale used to say in Hoosiers, you know, my team's on the floor. Mm-hmm. You got your team. Do the very best with the kids that want to be there. And if someone doesn't want to be there, I don't know. You, know, you can't worry about it too much, you know. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that and you sharing your thoughts. I know that, um, you know, it's, it's probably more popular in some of the bigger areas. Um, but it's something that, that is is part of the culture and, and that we have to deal with. And, and I agree with you that, you know, you got to coach the kids you got. Uh, your team's on the floor and, and, and make the best of of what you have there. So coach, I had one more question for you. Uh, as someone who's, who's been around the game of basketball, especially in Oregon for a while. Um, right now the state tournament, uh, has eight teams, uh, and it's double elimination, uh, goes three days, uh, but it used to be 16 teams. Uh, and that's kind of something that, that has been on the, the docket, uh, the thought of taking it back to 16 teams. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts? Should, should we go to a 16-team uh, single elimination tournament, or or you think we should stick with the the 18 double elimination? Well, I know when I first started coaching and we first made it down with a couple of my Gresham teams, um, you know, you love the 16-team tournament. You know, the, the more kids that we could get to have that experience, the better. Um, I, I think that your dilemma becomes um, the cost. That that to me. Not to me per se. I would I would prefer 16, and I would if if you could make it happen, I would push for 16. The dilemma I think you're going to have there is I think it's going the different direction. I mean, you look at attendance at the state tournament. You probably have more more feedback on that. Has it gone up? Has it stayed the same? Has it gone down? Those kind of things. I do remember as a kid in the 80s going to Memorial Coliseum, and we watched a, a game with with 10,000 people. 
in the stands at, at Memorial Coliseum watching a Park Rose versus Grant game or something like that back when Park Rose had a couple of NBA guys old Leron Ellis. But anyway, um, or actually it was Leroy, sorry. Um, but anyway, I, I would I would prefer a 16, but if you're not going to get a 16, I would fight like heck to make sure it's not a, a single elimination um, because I think I could see that to where the push might be to even a Final Four. And again, that, to me, it's just about less kids getting that experience. I still does Washington still think they have a a 16 teamer at the Tacoma Dome, where where kids get to, to. I think that's correct. Am I wrong? I think you're correct. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because there's a kid from Camas I was recruiting, and I know she got to go up to Tacoma, and they were they were part of 16 teams. I do I do think it's single elimination once they get there. So. That's your other dilemma. Do you have a school that from from maybe the eastern side of Oregon that comes over and they lose and they got to go home in one day? And, you know, there's those kind of things. Um, I think depending on how gracious the hosts are and, and the costs involved, those are probably things I'm not privy to. But the more kids that we can get, getting the experience, the better. And if it's if it's you guys as a, as a, as a community there of Oregon high school coaches, you know, fighting to make sure that as many kids have that opportunity as possible would be goal number one and if that's getting the 16 great you know if it's more single elimination i'd have to really think about it because now it's a it's a one and done and you turn around the next day or is it eight and we're going to fight for for double elimination so at least you get that second game it becomes a two-day experience at minimum for those teams um you know i don't know if there's a great answer to that one i, mm-hmm. I think you, know, you look around some of the different places nationwide and and you, you talk to cindy simmons and, and some of the people there at uh I'm not sure who's there still at the OSA. I don't know if Cindy's still there or Brad's still there or any of those guys. But, you know, the more kids that get the experience, the better. And that's what the OSA tells us is it's about the kids and it's about the experience. And so let's see what you can do as coaches to, to make as many kids that you know, try to have that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Coach, that's all I got for you today. Uh, I want to thank you tremendously for, for your time and, and sharing the game with us. Gotcha. Yeah, and if, if coaches want to reach out, I don't know if you have show notes at the end, but my email and my my uh, Twitter account and, and and phone number, you can post those, coach, so that they can take a peek at that and send me some some ideas. I, I think the nice thing about junior college is I can go out to your practice and just hang out and and or or not. It it, it there's really no. <laughs> it's been a fun role. I'll tell you that. I've been able to go to practices and help boys and girls teams at different reports of the seasons and and just kind of get to see people and in a, in, a, in a role that's not. You know, we're trying to beat each other, but just in a in a role that that, that I can kind of try to help the best I can. No, absolutely, and and that information will be in the uh, episode description, so we'll we'll get that information out to coaches uh, as well. Awesome. Uh, and then you also have, if coaches that are listening, if you uh, want to purchase, you have a DVD through Championship Productions on pressure defense as well. So um, yes, yeah, so I've got a couple. We've got a dribble drive one and a pressure defense one. And then if they want to check out the clinic that I did on the Summit Coaches Clinic, the virtual clinic, there's a there's a replay available on that also that's uh, it's posted right now. There you go. Even better. And we'll try to make sure those uh, websites are in the event description as well. So uh, thanks again, Coach. We appreciate it. All right. Take care. Good luck. All right. We hope you join us next time on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Until then, coach them up. Thank you for listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. 
Is there a coach you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like to hear us discuss? You can write us a message on the Anchor website or send us an email at OregonBasketballCoaches at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify.